Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the path ahead for spending at the Defense Department, a new zero trust strategy complete at the Pentagon and closing the loop on acquisitions for agency IT. It's Thursday, November 10th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will observe Veterans Day tomorrow. You'll get a new show again Monday, November 14th. The next deadline Congress faces now that the midterm elections are over is December 16th. That's when the current continuing resolution funding the government runs out. Roman Schweizer's managing director for aerospace and defense in the Washington Research Group for Cowan. Roman, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. I don't follow politics, so I depend on you to help me understand what the elections mean. Your latest brief lays out exactly that, what the election of 2022 means for defense. Your bottom line up front is this improbable election outcome that's still unsettled. We think a likely scenario is both sides negotiate for more spending. How does that play out in your view in the coming six weeks or so, Roman? Welcome. Uh, well, Francis, thank you. Uh, it's great to be with you as always. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, th- this week's gone as everyone uh, had expected, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> right on, right on cue. Um, <clears throat> so look, I, I think um, we're going to have a very busy lame duck period. Um, certainly Democrats have a lot they want to accomplish. Um, now, if anyone has been paying attention for the last uh, two years, uh, you you might worry that they have terrible clock management skills and an ability to deliver uh, on, on deadline. But uh, but then again, um, uh, they, they do face a short clock and, and I think are motivated to get something done. Um, and, and also, I, I think um, maybe not publicly, but I think uh, certainly Republicans also want to get some of these things accomplished and de-risked um, before what could be a very, very noisy uh, year next year. Um, I don't want to I don't want to skip to the uh, skip to the punchline. But, uh, you know, already folks are putting uh, government shutdown, uh, you know, odds on the board, uh, you know, somewhere. Uh, so, so I do think, you know, we're, we're going to get, you know, lawmakers will get back, um, you know, even, even though the split of the you know, next Congress hasn't been decided, right. We've got to wait for at least a Georgia runoff. Um, but defense is, you know, defense is pretty good. I mean, if you look at what, uh, Senate democratic appropriators offered a uh, 9% increase for defense, uh, you know, as a trade for all the non-defense spending, uh, they should be able to get there pretty quickly on the, the top line numbers. You know, I do worry about some of the policy issues, uh, you know, DOD funding travel for service members to uh, obtain abortions and, and, and things like that. Right. There's always some of these policy things that kind of trip things up. Um, but uh, hopefully they'll be uh, motivated to just kind of get it all done uh, by year end. Um, there's also uh, a Ukraine supplemental package uh, that will probably be attached. Uh, I've been you know, I've heard a range of numbers, but I'm kind of just anchoring down on, on 35 billion. We'll get give uh, a number of months of uh, uh, time uh, and, and we'll see how this winter plays out for, for really what happens in Ukraine, right? I mean, there's, you know, uh, it's accelerating. Uh, and then I think you've got, um, you know, a year end tax extenders bill, uh, defense companies uh, and, and others, uh, other uh, companies are, are very interested in an R&D tax provision that changed uh, this year uh, regarding switching from uh, expensing R&D uh, uh, 
taxes to uh, amortization that impacts their free cash flow. Um, and then really uh, NDAA will happen, probably have some China provisions related to that um, and, and some other things, but you know that that's kind of like clockwork and I think that's being conferenced as we speak. Uh, and then really the bonus issue, the, the, the real issue is does a debt ceiling raise get accomplished? Um, I think Democrats would like to do that so they can they avoid uh, President Biden having his hands tied. And and honestly, I think if you asked, uh, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Senate uh, majority. Well, let's put it this way. Mitch McConnell and uh, 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 McCarthy, would, you know, probably both would like to de-risk that event and would be fine with the Democrats taking uh, debt ceiling off, off the table. So um, you use the term de-risk a couple of times. Why is that the way that we should look at this as we're thinking about what happens, not just in the lame duck, but that sounds like a term that you apply in the five or so points that you make about what happens next year uh, or what you expect to happen next year in defense spending, Roman. Yeah, I mean, look, there has certainly been a nagging undercurrent of concern that we are sort of in the you know 2011 Budget Control Act, uh, you know, sort of redux, uh, you know, of a um, House majority uh, with a, a you know Freedom Caucus slash fiscal hawk bent with you know uh, debt and deficits on their mind, looking to um, tie down the president uh, to uh, you know to restrain uh, or to rein in uh, federal spending. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, defense was uh, was uh, a trade a trade in that and uh, could, you know could, um, included. Um, I just I don't don't think it's it's a good analogy. Uh, I think the world is a much different place than 2011. I kind of put that in my note. Um, OCO spending peaked in 2008. Uh, and then we really started to draw down from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, over the next several years. And, and the budget kind of followed that down. You know, that's that's not the case today. Right. We've got troops to, you know, we and, and, the, and the, the, the analogy, the counter analogy that I use is in 2021, we got out of Afghanistan and uh, the fiscal 22 budget was up six percent rather than down 10% like Senator Warren and Sanders wanted, right? So in the face of, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, finally, you know, closing that chapter, uh, defense spending still managed to go up and is probably likely to go up 9 or 10% this year. Uh, so I just, I, I think, in, in my mind, uh, geopolitics matter a lot more uh, when you look historically at budget trajectory. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of use the line, wars, either hot or cold, uh, tend to be better predictors of spending. When you describe what you expect to see in the lame duck, Roman, it sounds to me like the groups that really matter in Congress, uh, appropriations, Republicans and Democrats, and armed services, Republicans and Democrats in both chambers, by and large, agree on what they want to see. I don't see anything from the election results either that you described or that I've seen in other outlets that makes me think the composition of those groups will change much, that that agreement is likely to continue into 2023 into the next Congress. Is that a fair read on my part? I think so. I mean, it, you know, I, I do look, I mean, you know, the, the Republican and, and Democrat leadership, you know, tends to set the priorities, right? And and I think that, you know, the concern is, uh, you know, potential House Speaker McCarthy, you know, is going to face some pressure and, and will have to, you know, balance a pretty, you know, fractured caucus, right? And this has proved 
difficult for you know Paul Ryan and John Boehner in the past, and so it's really going to be uh, you know a, there's going to be a trial and error period, I suspect. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I would say that you know the Biden administration, for its part, um, proposed a flat defense budget or you know modest increases, depending on how you count inflation, right? And that's kind of skewed everybody. Um, but he, you know, uh, he and and uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, and and Leader Schumer, you know, basically went for increases, even though the progressive wing of their caucus did not want to go for increases; they wanted cuts. Uh, and so I find it hard to believe that a you know a Republican leadership team uh, is going to uh, cut uh, defense spending, uh, given the you know at the same time they're being uh, very uh, aggressive from a policy perspective on China. Uh, so, you know, th those two things just just I can't square them in my head. Uh, and so I do, you know, the, the one caveat, just, you know, speaking about the lame duck, um, you know, it, it's, you know, I've got a lot of people retiring, a lot of senior uh, Democrats and Republicans on Senate approach that are retiring. Um, they they want to get this all done. This is their sort of last hurrah. Um, so everybody's kind of incentivized, you know, just retiring members of Congress anyway, right, that want to kind of vote for this stuff and get and get home. So uh, I, I do think uh, we've got this, you know, sort of special lamed up. And then we get into next year. There's going to be a feeling out process. But, you know, we'll, and we'll see. I mean, maybe the, you know, President Biden will be able to do some give and take. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, in the grand scheme, of, I, I still think, you know, is there a pandemic, unspent pandemic relief money out there that the Republicans can kind of claw back? And is it, you know, tens of billions or hundreds of billions in, in savings that they can, you know, declare victory, right? Uh, you used the S word earlier in our conversation, shutdown. And I wonder where that lays on the landscape right now in your view, Roman. What's the timeline potential that leaders in government in the executive branch should be starting to think about now? So I think if, if, if debt ceiling is off the table, um, you know, if, if the Democrats are able to get that ceiling raised uh, in the lame duck, right, attach it to some vehicle or, or you know, some whatever mechanism, you know, we'll see how crafty they can be. Uh, then, you know, probably shut down um, maybe dissipates a little bit because, you know, typically you get debt ceiling and, and um, shutdowns, you know, pressurized, you know, uh, next fall. Um, I, 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 you know, again, it's, it's one of those things where you would expect Republicans having seen how this plays out in the past to not want to go down that road to go off the cliff like Thelma and Louise. And uh, it tends to it tends to play well, poorly for them. Um, so I, I really think they can kind of get what they need from the administration, I think, without going there. Um, but then again, I think the administration and uh, congressional Democrats would be happy to push them there. Uh, as well, right, optically to uh, to score points as well. So um, it's, you know, unfortunately, the odds are always higher than anyone would like. I, I think we're just going to have to see how nasty things get. And and again, the other thing, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the House oversight uh, hearing calendar looks like. But uh, you know, you're going to have a, a, probably a 24-7 channel of, uh, you know, Hunter Biden uh, hearings, um, Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, COVID origins, um, woke corporations and, and military. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how nasty things get, how quickly and how nasty things get. 
Roman Schweizer, great analysis as always. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Francis. Really, really happy to be with you. You can find a link to Roman's memo about defense spending in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Defense Department is putting its new Zero Trust strategy through a classification review now. A version for the public to see could be out within the next week or two. Kate Ledesma is Senior Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs at Security Scorecard. She's former Senior Advisor at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Kate, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What happens behind the scenes to get something like DOD Zero Trust Strategy out the door? Who does what to get it ready for release? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, first, congratulations to John Sherman, Randy Resnick, uh, and team um, developing, coordinating, and getting to the point of signature on a strategy like this is the culmination of a lot of hard work, especially in a large organization like DOD. I think, you know, even more so um, DOD setting a deadline to fully implement zero trust over the next five years uh, is a major step as well. In government, we're really good at admiring the problem, studying and evaluating. And I think what this strategy and the associated five-year timeline demonstrate is that we're really good at taking action too. And we've seen this quite a bit lately, especially in the government space. Um, in fact, uh, Okta released this summer a report that actually found government organizations are adopting zero trust principles at a faster rate uh, than companies. And I think there are several reasons for this. Uh, among them, last year's executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity in particular really spurred action, calling for modernization and implementation of stronger cybersecurity standards across the federal government for uh, information and operational technology. It also issued a call to action to agencies to secure cloud services and implement a zero trust architecture. We also saw last year the administration released a draft, um, draft zero trust architecture guidelines. Um, so agencies have you know, until next year to meet the goals it outlines. And then along with that, we saw CISA develop and release a zero trust maturity model, um, and NIST has continued its work in the area, releasing a document for agencies to help them in planning for zero trust architecture. So what we're really seeing is a unified whole of government approach in the last few years, and we're really seeing the community move in a unified direction to collectively move the needle on reducing and managing cyber risk. So you mentioned a whole lot of guiding documents and a whole lot of policies there. Is there a point at which there becomes too many of those where it's difficult for people to move forward because they're getting pulled in a bunch of different directions about things they have to do? I note my colleague Mark Pomerlo writes in this article at defensegroup.com, 152 total activities in zero trust in just the DOD policy alone. Yeah, I think in this case, what we're seeing is actually a harmony of pulling a policy lever uh, you know, the actions at the level of the administration, and then agencies applying their own expertise to implement policy internally, um, but also in the case of CISA and NIST and others, um, leveraging their expertise to help other agencies kind of sift through all of those requirements uh, and implement. And I think, you know, one other thing that we're seeing is, is Congress taking action as well. 
providing funding uh, either directly or through mechanisms like the Technology Modernization Fund uh, to enact zero trust, things like the zero trust initiative and similar cybersecurity defensive actions. So agencies can really operationalize the guidance, you know, stop admiring the problem and, and start taking action. Um, and at the end of the day, concepts like zero trust aren't simply about meeting compliance requirements. They're really about security. And so when we see this alignment of resources to security and cybersecurity priorities, um, that's when we're really going to see uh, the needle move on cybersecurity. Your former agency is one of the organizations that's driving all that stuff that you just described. And I note that the uh, Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program celebrated its 10th birthday recently that came out of the organization that preceded CISA and PPD. Um, what does that say to you about kind of the long view of where cybersecurity and cyber defenses are headed in government, Kate? Uh, you know, for congratulations to the CDM program uh, on 10 years. Uh, I think the CDM program is the perfect embodiment of um, the, this concept of risk-informed decision-making uh, and information for action. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, CDM was novel. It was new. Uh, folks didn't really know how to, how to use it, what to do with it. We've really seen a maturity of that program uh, and that will only continue. And I think, you know, one of the things we've seen with uh, the CISA CDM program is uh, their, not only their work with, with the .gov space, right? So federal agencies, state, local, tribal, territorial. It's, uh, they're also their embrace of uh, industry government solutions. So connecting government uh, at all levels uh, with industry solutions that can help them tackle their toughest problems. We've really seen uh, the administration embrace this concept, um, you know, even in the last administration with uh, public-private partnerships, industry collaboration, really bringing in uh, sector-specific agencies, the vendor community, providers to help inform national strategy um, because they're a part of the solution as, you know, as much as, as government is. And we've really seen CISA, uh, the CDM program, uh, and I think, you know, government in general embrace this concept of uh, of industry government collaboration. Well, and we're even seeing it at the agency level in the areas in which the, a particular agency has jurisdiction in working with the private sector, the Caesar office at uh, the energy department and so on. Um, what does the maturation of all of this look like in your view? What do, we, what do you see happening within the next five years to move to whatever the next level may be? And, and what could that next level look like, Kate? So I think uh, um, National Cyber Director Chris Inglis uh, said this summer at DEF CON that defense is the new offense. Um, and I think we're, we're really seeing the movement toward that as well. Uh, it starts with this concept that security is everyone's responsibility, right? A, a defense involves everybody. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about the concept of risk-informed decision-making, arming decision-makers at every part of the organization with the information that they need to mitigate uh, and reduce cyber risk, uh, you know, that's really important. And I think that's where we're going to continue to see movement. Um, what that means is arming those folks with the information they need to make the decisions. Uh, so, so having the information, but delivering it in a way 
that is useful to decision makers. Um, and also that tells a story, right? You know, I've heard before, don't tell me how to invest. Uh, tell me why my investment in cybersecurity drives down risk. And so things like the CDM dashboard, um, things like, uh, you know, information sharing, uh, cybersecurity metrics, uh, things like that. That's the next uh, maturation, I think, in our collective cyber defense uh, to make sure that we're driving down risk across the entire digital ecosystem. In that landscape that you just laid out, how do we know that we've achieved success? How do we know that we've mitigated risk as much as we possibly can? Or is that not knowable? So, uh, you know, it's really hard. I think that's why we haven't done it well yet. Um, it's hard to prove a negative. You know, something didn't happen because we did this. Um, but but when we think about things like cyber metrics, um, we think about things like, you know, you know, what my organization does, um, cybersecurity ratings, uh, dashboards, uh, things that show uh, the impact of our investment in cybersecurity posture. I think that's how we, we, we demonstrate to investors, to the public, to our stakeholders that cybersecurity investments really are driving down risk. Um, there's no eliminating of cyber risk. It will always be there. Um, but by be but by uh, you know being able to show um, where that investment is is um, having an impact, uh, that's how we're going to continue to uh, justify investments in cybersecurity and also demonstrate the inf the effectiveness. You know, did I reduce my attack surface? Um, you know, even things uh, tactical items like critical patch status and things like that. They all tell a story of because I had this funding, because I was able to make this decision, we patched faster, we have fewer vulnerabilities, um, and ultimately, um, those are the kind of visual and visualizations that we you know we'll be able to show stakeholders to demonstrate the efficacy of these investments. And that's the kind of demonstration that seems to me that would make sense to non-technology people up the chain as you're trying to demonstrate uh, demonstrate ROI, Kate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing we've seen in the past couple of years uh, is, is cybersecurity and cyber risk decisions coming, uh, you know, out of this is away from the CISO's desk, out of IT, um, and also finding their way into boardrooms, um, into, uh, you know, investment decisions in the C-suite. You know, we've seen SEC propose rules um, on cybersecurity uh, experience for boards, um, you know, boards are really becoming more interested in cyber risk. And I think this is a good thing because cyber risk is a business risk. Um, and so, you know, we need to address it in the same way organizationally and at the enterprise level that we would any other business risk. Kate Ledesma, great conversation. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the DOD Zero Trust Strategy and the anniversary of the CDM program in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com slash government. A new contract for ISR operations is one of the most recent awards from the General Services Administration's Office of Assisted Acquisition Services. Chris Benetham is Assistant Commissioner of Assisted Acquisition Services. At ELC 2022, he tells me about the mission of his office and who it serves. We basically buy services and IT um, for government, federal government. So 80% of our business is with the Department of Defense and their components and Probably the next largest customer is 
Department of Homeland Security. Um, of course, in the last few years, um, HHS has ramped up in there. So uh, we manage acquisitions for uh, those organizations, and uh, we typically build relationships with our clients that are um, several years um, as we manage those projects. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of amplify their missions or their ability to get their missions done. So that's when they turn to us. What are the trends that you're seeing among what they're buying and the questions that they're coming to you with as they start to think about the things that they want to buy? Uh, they uh, turn to us when, one, they don't have the capacity to do it themselves. Um, two, uh, when they, well, when they, our easiest sale is with clients that have already worked with us. So um, they turn to us because they know um, that we're going to help them build the strategy to get the outcome they want. And it depends on the client. We're really following their lead. So, you know, um, uh, you know, we work with EPA. Uh, we work with um, Department of State. And depending on their mission, um, we're going to make sure that we dive into what their goal is. And we work with them as part of their team. And uh, we come up with the strategies that actually um, gets them the outcomes that they're going to want to see. And we do that by managing that project over its life cycle and making sure that our industry partners are coming to to us with um, the innovations and solutions that are going to get the government client where they want to be. When you talk about building a strategy and, and asking, learning what a customer's goal is, is that goal necessarily certain stuff, or is that goal the mission outcome that they want? What's the best way that that person, that organization can present to you, this is the goal we want to accomplish, Chris? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, in life, people often don't really know what they want. <laughs> And you got to lead them there. Um, and so that's kind of the partnership that we bring to the table. So um, uh, we, most of what we buy is services more than it's stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be stuff, yeah. and now it's mostly services. So it's a little harder for people to put in mind um, what they really want. And so they don't really want these services. They're trying to get cybersecurity, or they want to get a secure network, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to lead them to um, really building a strong requirement that helps industry um, put out great options for us to evaluate and then put in place. What makes that request then most useful to industry, do you think, to be able to come back to you and say, we're capable of doing this, and then you be able to interpret for your customer this is the these are the couple of good fits um so i think being uh well we engage on the front end and pre-award with industry and the client and we go back and forth and and build that collaboration so industry can be telling us about the latest and greatest that they're offering and they can also um ask questions of what we're trying to accomplish with the client. So that collaboration is really the crux of what we do at GSA. Uh, We bring the parties together. We talk through um, what we're trying to accomplish as a government um, to make make good things happen for citizens. And uh, then we put that in place. And then we, on the back end, um, administer um, that contract to make sure that we're getting what we're paying for. Mm That that was where I wanted to go next, is what happens, what's the service after the sale, I guess? What happens in the delivery part of it from your perspective, if anything? 
we are in constant communication with the industry partner and with our client. And, you know, our clients certainly have to be invested in the outcome, right? So they're um, telling us if we need to make course corrections and what we're trying to achieve. And that happens throughout the life of these projects. Our projects um, are typically five years long in terms of what we're managing. You know, some are longer, some are shorter, right? But on, on average, it's a five-year type of commitment. And so you're going to be um, doing check-ins regularly, whether it's quarterly, every six months, you're doing these check-ins um, to make sure that we're getting what we intended to get with the requirement we built on the front end. So we, we take some time to build the right requirement on the front end to make sure we're going to get what we need on the back end. What makes for a good industry partner and what makes for a, shall we say, more challenging industry partner? <laughs> good question. Um, well, you know, good industry partners are interested in um, making sure that they understand the requirement. Uh, they come to the table, ask questions. Um, they they have um, they're very clear with following um, the requirements that are outlined in a solicitation, um, and then they're doing the right follow through. I think in the end, that's communication, mm -hmm. right? So I think good. Clear communication on all parties. It's not just an industry partner, but from the client too. Everybody needs to be invested in the outcome. What's your role then as a communicator to communicate and maybe a cadence of communication and so on? Is it constant? I mean, is it is it is there a possibility that there's too much communication at some point in this process? Oh, so you're saying what's Goldilocks communication? <laughs> just right? Um, yeah, actually. <laughs> I didn't say it as eloquently as you did, but yes, that's what I was going for. Um, so we're not just an acquisition shop. Um, you know, we are putting um, contracts in place, but we're a project management shop. We're a financial management shop. So we're doing a lot of things um, that require continuous communication. And it's not just about communicating, it's effectively communicating, which is just right. So, you know, that is, um, you know, if there's a client that's never worked with us before, that's kind of uh, working with them so they understand what we bring to the table and they understand what we're going to do and what they're required to do to make this relationship successful. And that's the same with the new industry partner. If they've never worked with us, we work through the process of here's what we do, here's what we need you to do, this is going to make things go smoothly. So, um, for folks that have never worked with us before, that's probably more communication. For mm -hmm. folks that have done it before, I think there's a cadence that's already set. Do you have like an onboarding process when you have a new, either a new client or a new industry uh, company that you haven't worked with before? I, I won't say that it's a formal onboarding process because I think people or, or organizations are unique. Um, but for instance, we do a program, uh, Small Business Innovation Research, um, and we started doing phase three projects. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Cibber? Can I say Cibber? Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, so we started doing that about four years ago, and those are businesses that haven't traditionally worked in the government market. They're bringing new technology into government, um, trying to commercialize it. And uh, so that takes more mentoring um, from us on the front end of that um, to help them understand, you know, what is this contract that we're getting into? What's required of us in this contract? What kind of reporting? What kind of, you know, um, how do we invoice? All those kinds of things. Um, 
So we're mentoring them through that. That's a high touch, more high touch than our typical industry relationship. How do you and your team follow up on an acquisition and determine the customer got what the customer wanted? The customer is happy with the outcome because outcomes are harder to measure than outputs. We talk about that all the time. And I wonder what that looks like from an acquisition perspective. So we certainly rely on the client, um, but on the front end of uh, our relationship, as we're getting ready to put the solicitation out, we put clear um, goals in there, like quality uh, um, surveillance plans. And uh, then we work to those and we monitor those through the life of the contract. So every quarter, every month, um, we are going to be monitoring um, the outputs that are supposed to get us to the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And that's through... um, surveillance continuous so our project managers are going to work with the client work with the industry partner with regular communication to this is what we did and this is what happened from that and is this moving us in the right direction all right um what should i watch as an outside observer that you're doing to indicate that you're continuing on the trend line that you want to that whether it's are you doing just is it just volume is that what indicates your trajectory of success or are there other metrics that you look at periodically to say, yes, we're continuing to grow or whatever it is that you desire as an organization in AAS for the outcomes that you want? Um, that seems like a simple question, <laughs> but it's nuanced. So, you know, we're not out to increase volume per se. We're out to help agencies achieve their missions. The Part of your question, though, uh, agency will keep coming back to us if we're helping them do that, right? So that could be reflected in volume. But it's not about volume, if that makes sense. It's about uh, the strong relationships we're building. And and we're doing that because, uh, well, we see that because they come back to us more. So I'll say 70% of our business is from clients that already do work with us. That says something. It's a trusted Um, receiving value relationship, right? So um, it's about mission outcomes, but you can measure it through the work we're doing in terms of the volume, but that just means they love us, if I can quote Sally Field. You can read more about the AAS office and GSA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday, off tomorrow for Veterans Day. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.